So go ahead and pull out the Cycle of Awakening page. At the top of it, we have self-honesty. So this is, the, this is the beginning of the whole unraveling of the cycle of affliction is the application of self-honesty. Sounds easy enough, but if you've been working with self-cultivation, you probably have found out that it's very easy to deceive yourself. So self-honesty is the way that we can stay grounded in our capacity to apply that is by always coming back to our direct embodied experience. When you're doing the meditation technique, you're training for life, right? Even if if we just stop here, you have already the whole skill set. Paying attention to the feeling sensation at the nostril. How does it feel when you're talking to your boss? In your body. Are you contracting? Are you not breathing anymore? Did your shoulders go up to your ears? How does it feel when you talk to your kids? They're start, you're starting to get frustrated. Your shoulders are going up. Your abdomen is tensing. How does it feel when you go home and meet your beloved? Is it really there? Right? So self-honesty is easy to, to slip out of your grasp if you use it only in the mental sphere, which most of us are going to make the error of making all of this way too mental because that's how we've been enculturated. How many people in here know what a rhomboid is? Okay. Yeah, more people than most places. If, how about a vastus medialis or a trochanter or whatever? Who cares? Can you feel your vastus medialis? Can you fully feel the space of your inner thigh and really know what the sensation is? That's what matters. Because that's your embodied experience. Naming the muscle is only good for your anatomy exam. Other than that, it's basically irrelevant for your experience. Okay, you see the difference? Self-honesty always relates to the body-mind. And that's how you can stay immediate with the practice of self-honesty. Just like the idea of if you can recognize self-contraction, you can break the cycle of affliction. If you can recognize your embodied experience, you're now in self-honesty. And by definition, you're out of self-contraction. Right? This is the classic saying, right? The truth shall set you free. What does that mean? It means when you're dwelling in self-honesty, means you're really intimate with your experience. That experience, that relating to the experience, gives you directly understanding. You intuitively understand your circumstance. And that understanding is what breaks the cycle. Okay? So it is tricky and it is slippery but if you remember this rule of connecting to the body, and what's the most obvious, central, sensitive place in the body? The vital center, yeah, here, your guts. Okay, so self-honesty is a gut-level endeavor. It's not just an intellectual exercise, okay? So just know that you easily are going to trick yourself by intellectualizing yourself right out of self-honesty. And if you know that, it's called catching the thief in the house.
you already know that that's probably going to happen, so it's much less likely to happen now that you know it. That's why I'm saying whatever sensation you can notice on your nose or in the center of your head, grab a hold of that one and follow that thread to more and more subtle sensations and feelings inside your body. And very quickly, you'll get much more embodied, meaning your awareness will start to be much more here and less leaving. Okay? It's a, it's a good point. And we do tend to disconnect our consciousness from our body when either we're in chronic pain or we're in chronic emotional pain. And the cycle of affliction, self-contraction, causes our consciousness to want to get out. Right? That's the break of relationship. What we're going for is that your awareness and your body are in the same place. They stay in the same place. Right? If you imagine another body that's the same shape as your body, that's made out of air, that that body stays inside your physical body. That's the idea. Okay? So it will happen quickly, but if you practice it every day, very quickly you'll feel that you're actually rooted in here. Your consciousness is like tethered to your belly. Okay? Yeah, that's very important for physical and mental health. When the consciousness leaves the body too much, all the systems go out of balance, and it's uh, detrimental to our mental health. Okay? So it leads us to the next thing, which is intimacy, which is precisely what we're talking about. There's an intimacy in the relationship between your awareness and your direct embodied experience. Okay? The things that are happening to you, each one of them creates a, a physical kind of undulation. Your body is a super sensitive instrument that is being strummed by everything that you're experiencing. And intimacy means that your awareness stays in contact with that. Does that make sense? It seems like no duh that it would just stay, but it, it actually has a tendency to want to get out, to want to not experience. Okay? The idea of how to tangibly apply this in the living moment, you're tangibly practicing intimately relating with your experience. Every practice we do, the whole enterprise of spiritual cultivation is really only for this. It's only to restore the intimacy between appearances, changing phenomenon, and awareness, and to make sure they stay in relationship. Okay? In Indian yoga, that's called Shiva and Shakti. Right? In Chinese cosmology, heaven and earth. And the idea is that if it's heaven and earth, where are they, the, where's the touching point? It's inside the vital center. That's where they touch. So that's your direct experience. And that's where intimacy is practiced. Mm -hmm. It might be a different definition of intimacy than the one. Our society tends to take intimacy and sex and make them synonyms, which is ridiculous because most of the sex that's happening in our society is not very intimate. So they're not necessarily the same thing. It would be nice if sex and intimacy would be together when sex is happening, but intimacy doesn't necessarily include sex. Right? Intimacy means contact, intima, in close proximity. In fact, touching. 
Your awareness is touching your direct experience and not pulling away from it. Okay? What results from doing that, relating, is you get understanding. Right? Relationship and understanding. You get understanding. So that's the next piece, clear view. On the cycle of affliction, when you pull away from things, you don't have a clear sense of the way things really are functioning. So you get erroneous understanding. When you're relating to things and being intimate with them, you have innate wisdom and it, it gives you understanding. It's just, it's just there. You don't need a PhD in cosmology of, of the universe to have clear view. In fact, many of the most brilliant people who wrote about this, they sort of left school when they were really young. So many of the great writers and teachers and mystics had like sixth, seventh, eighth grade education. Some of them were illiterate and just transmitted the teaching. But an absolutely crystal clear understanding of what we would call now quantum physics. The nature of the way body and mind function and the nature of the way everything in the universe works. Because of what's called innate wisdom. Okay? When you read Rumi or you read um, Hafiz or you read any of the, of the mystic poetry, they're pointing at this idea that if you give something your attention, and you give it your full sincerity, your full heart like a child, it will give you a gateway into the cosmos. It doesn't matter what that thing is. It could be a pinwheel, it could be a tree, it could be a cloud, it could be your own body. But when you are really there with 100% of your attention, with a curious heart, it shows you what is. It reveals to you the way things are. And you have this, what's called recognition, your view starts to clear up, okay? So it's not something that you have to study a bunch of sutras or memorize an old text or something. It's literally right there in your whole experience. The whole Bible, the whole Upanishads, the whole Yoga Sutras, the whole Tao Te Ching, the whole Quran. It's all right there. All the parts of it that speak to universal truth, it's all right in your experience, okay? From that understanding, from that clear view, comes the capacity to illuminate all the nine spheres. And this is where the rubber meets the road, right? This is what to do. What to do is, okay, I'm understanding the three laws of nature. I'm understanding the importance of the vital center and staying embodied. Okay, now what's going on? Go through meticulously, go through the nine spheres of your life and look into them, investigate into them. What's working? What's not working? Where are you fulfilled? Where are you not fulfilled? And illuminate those spheres. It's not, it's, there's no mystery there. You, you know. Okay, this is where no teaching can go beyond that. The teacher can't tell you what to do in your own life in the nine spheres. Even if we had thousand enlightened avatars, th their jurisdiction doesn't reach that far. All we can do is illuminate the universal. And you take it into your life and brighten all nine spheres. You're going to need your trusted friend's self-honesty because what's going to happen is when you start going through those spheres, the habituated pattern of staying in the cycle of affliction or contracting or resisting even seeing the most difficult places in your life is going to flare up. And it's going to go, that's a really bad idea. You don't want to look in that box in the corner. Because inside that box is your deepest pain or your deepest shame or your deepest or the thing you actually need to, to work with and let it move. 
but the conditioned pattern is going to say, don't do it. So to brighten the nine spheres, you need self-honesty, you need intimacy. Okay. The next piece is that as you start to brighten the nine spheres, a sense of adaptability arises without even trying to be adaptable. It's not like you take on a new ideal, but you understand intuitively in your gut the law of change and you're willing to work with it you, because you're not resisting anymore. If the market changes, you change your product. Who cares the way you did it three years ago? You know How many times you hear either people who have been doing something a really long time, you probably heard your parents say to your grandparents, say, well, back in my day, or we've always done it like this. You've always done it like that. Well, like that isn't working anymore. And so now we have to adapt. We have to adapt. It would be lovely if all of us could eat seafood more frequently, but if you eat too much seafood, you're going to get too much mercury. So it's like you have to make intelligent decisions, right? So that's the world we live in. If you hold your cell phone to your head 10 hours a day, if you overdo screen time, there's going to be a result for that. So we have to be able to adapt. Knowing how to adapt comes from self-honesty. It comes from brightening the spheres. It comes from being in the vital center. It comes from your intuitive understanding. Okay? So it's not something you get from the outside. Okay? So, for example, the structure of the book, it doesn't tell you what to do. It helps you find out how to move from within by learning how to feel it. To get that, you have to do something every single day that frees that up in you. In Buddhism, it's called lighting your own lamp. That's what it means. You light your lamp, you can see. You did it, you get the results. Okay? With adaptability, with the ability to flow with the way things are, your breathing relaxes more. You can feel the breath is, has an invitation to move more in your body. When you're resisting things or going against change, you always tighten up your body and you tighten up your breathing. All right, that tightens up your vital center and now the cycle of affliction is on. Okay, It's hard to go directly to natural breathing, to just try to breathe deep is really difficult because usually you're fighting against resistance and then you create a new kind of tension and what I've seen many years of trying to teach people how to breathe correctly it doesn't work I've never seen anyone be able to do it so I stopped teaching it I don't teach pranayama anymore and I'm a yoga teacher by you know by trade so something's something was missing it took me many years to figure out what it was and it was you can't teach how to breathe correctly if people aren't willing to be intimate with their direct experience. Because all you're trying to do is to override the discomfort by breathing deep using your will. And the body just goes, no, you, you can't trick the body. You actually click on the sympathetic nervous response, the fight or flight response, by trying to breathe too deep. You go, there's resistance. It's tight here and your stress response will start to happen, you'll start producing cortisol from doing deep breathing. Like, I've seen it happen so many times, and people get really frustrated. So forget about it. Find out how to be intimate with your experience, and your natural, original deep breath, your baby breath, it will come back on its own. The breath will just start dropping lower and lower into your belly until it goes all the way to your pelvic floor, 
and you'll feel that you're not doing it. It's happening through you. This is what the yogis call the great respiration. The great respiration is the one that you don't do willfully. It's life breathing you. That's the one we want. Okay? Did you have a question? Do you have a question? Okay. So when, when we're feeling adaptable, the breath is moving through us more freely, then we feel a sense of relaxed presence. You're actually able to be where you are. Because there's not that weight of upholding the, the armor. It's heavy to carry the armor. It's hard to be in relaxed presence when there's layers of physical tension, when there's layers of emotional resistance, when there's that need to egoically identify. It's hard to relax into presence. Okay, so that starts to show up. So does a natural interest in serving others. So remember I said that adaptability sort of comes spontaneously as the view starts to become clear to you because you understand change. Well, so does the notion of being interested in serving others. Which intuitive understanding is the one that produces that feeling? Interested to serve others because you intuitively understand what? Hmm? Relatedness, yeah, interdependence, relatedness. It becomes very, very clear. Like so much to the point that usually in every person I've seen, when that really dawns, meaning you really get that in your body, you, you just start weeping. You can't not weep. Because every effort you've made that you've made by yourself, you see how it was totally futile. How you owe all of your success, even being able to sit here, to your parents. They made the physical body. The ability to eat your lunch. Who made it? There's so much of the sense that we're in it together. We're doing it. Everything you do is for, for all of us. That the heart cracks open. Right? So this notion of serving others is not an ideal. In most religions, it's an ideal because they're trying to get people to connect with their basic goodness. But what happens is you do it because you're supposed to. And you don't actually have recognition. So it doesn't actually work. It creates a society where people are acting nice to each other, but they're not actually awake. Right? So it usually doesn't work. It has to come from your own experience. Does that make sense? Yeah? It's the byproduct of doing deep practice is that you feel more intimately relating to everything around you. And the notion of preserving life is the most obvious thing to you. Another way of saying that is the next piece along the circle, which is harmony with nature. Harmony with nature means that you naturally feel when it's time to rest. You naturally feel when it's time to be more active. You're participating, cooperating with the natural forces and not trying to supersede them with too much willpower. In the Silicon Valley, ambition and will are like the two gods and, and money. But <laughs> right. ambition and willpower are what push the speed of the next thing, always being ahead of the next person. So 
it's very easy to supersede, or at least try to supersede the natural way of things by using your own will. What happens when we do that is our appearance comes to an early end. You cannot trick nature. Nobody ever succeeded in tricking nature like that. So if you stay up all night and work and do that year after year, you're going to die young. It's just cause and effect. Right. So harmony with nature is not some bumper sticker from Northern California. Right. It's, it's to feel what's true in your relationship to, to the sun and the moon and the wind, to know how much sun is too much, to know how late staying up is too late, to know when you need a nap, to know when you should eat, to know when maybe it's better you skip a meal because your body is doing something else. All of that is it's intuitive and it comes up. I've never found a book that, that can spell it out clearly enough that you can apply it to your life. It, just, it never works. Chinese medicine is great. Ayurveda is great. Naturopathy is great. But you can't memorize all those tenets and apply it. It's not, it's not direct enough to your life. So harmony with nature comes out of the vital center. Right. It's hard to describe that, but I think most of you have a glimpse or some under intuitive understanding or direct experience of what that means. No? From that comes a sense of fulfillment. Right? You're, you're actually able to be in the experience that you're having and you understand that that experience is temporary, changing, interdependent. I love the way one of my teachers put it. I, was, I had a really hard time for many, many years with this idea of right and wrong. Right? It's, I have that kind of quality in myself. It's like right is right and wrong is wrong. So I was fighting with one of my teachers about right and wrong, right? A straight line, a crooked line. It's like I couldn't, I couldn't let it go, right? And he basically was saying that, well, I was giving some example of some murderer, Je let's just say Jeffrey Dahmer, whatever. Like, that's wrong. Right? And he was like, you can say whatever you want to say about it, but that's how things happen in samsara. He was, this teacher was Buddhist. That's how things happen in samsara. And then I would bring up another example. That's how things happen in samsara. You're not being where you are. You wish things were different than the way they are. And that's why you're in samsara. I was thinking to get out of samsara, everything has to be different. The only thing that had to be different was my erroneous view, my resistance. You get the difference? So when you're actually able to let go of it should be like this, it must be like that, and you're actually able to dance with the way it is, fulfillment is the natural result. Even while we destroy the environment, even while the ice caps melt, even while you name it, what, whatever is on your uh, radar in terms of all the things that are going on in the world that seem like the whole thing's going to hell in a handbasket, even while all of that's happening, fulfillment is still your basic experience. It's quite a paradoxical thing.
certainly if you watch CNN, it doesn't seem like everything's okay. When the resistance lets go, there's a natural understanding that, okay, it's okay. Things are as they are, and so you continue to respond. It doesn't mean if you're a Greenpeace uh, worker, you just stop doing your work because you've accepted that people are going to dump oil into the ocean. You still absolutely do your truth, but you don't hinge your happiness based on the oil companies stopping spilling oil into the ocean. If you do that, you'll never be happy. Right? If you wait for politicians to stop being corrupt, you're going to have to incarnate 500 billion times before you could actually be happy. So even while there are murderers and molesters and corporate bigots and political thieves, you can still be happy and enlightened. Okay. So at any place inside the cycle of awakening, you can enter. And when you enter, by definition, you break the cycle of affliction. If you're intimate, that means you're no longer self-contracted, broken. Right? If you have a clear view, it means you're no longer in erroneous understanding of the way things function. You're seeing clearly. If you're seeing clearly, you're acting clearly. Right? If you're breathing naturally, you're feeling your body. Your body tells you the way nature functions. It is nature. So you get a clear view. Right? So it makes it really tangible. Everyone here is going to have something different that is easiest for you to enter. Work with whatever is easiest for you. Whatever is most readily available, grab the thread and start going down and you'll get to the whole spool. Okay? Questions about this? That's good. That's the beginning. I mean, you can't actually be honest until you've actually taken that step because all of us, quite a lot of the time, are bullshitting ourselves. So that's perhaps the first step in self-honesty is to go, I've been lying to myself or I'm lying to myself right now, and then to snap, snap out of it. Sure. Self-honesty and judgment often get uh, confused. We don't like being called out. We meaning the, that egoic part of ourselves. It's trying to hide. It's trying to operate like, who's the, the wizard of Oz? It's like behind, behind, behind this big voice and you peel back the thing and there's this little person back there that's just totally afraid, right? That dishonesty can only function behind all of these layers of protection, behind the defense posture. So to see where you're not being truthful is like it rips open that whole facade and exposes that egoic structure and it, it, it makes it feel naked and sometimes it revolts. So you have to be gentle and persistent, loving and persistent. There's no judgment whatsoever. But you're going to feel judged. That's a defense posture of the self-concept or the self-structure to make sure you don't look at it. Stop judging me. I'm not judging you. I just said that right now you're behaving in a way that's not authentic. It's not a judgment. It's just an observation. That's how we do this, what we call internal dialogue, which we're going to do next. 
Okay? So you have to be really clear about that because all of us have also learned how to constantly judge ourselves and berate ourselves. We can thank the monotheistic religions for that, especially the ones that have the more guilt, the more exposure you had to the guilt-laden um, religions, the more strong that peace is, right? Guilt and shame. So that's not innate to us, and it will show up along with self-honesty, but it isn't a part of self-honesty. It's like a growth on the side of it that's doesn't, that doesn't actually belong. So when you find yourself being judgmental of yourself, if you can, don't add another tier of judgment. Just go, okay, I'm honest about being judgmental. Okay, come back to the primary thing you were looking at in yourself and see what it's like when you don't judge yourself. Okay? Easier said than done, but you have to remember that as you apply self-honesty. If you're not sure that that is actually the way things are, just try self-honesty with someone else and see what their response is. The egoic structure does not want to be exposed. So we all sort of make a sub-vocal agreement to not um, penetrate anyone else's defense posture. Right? It's a ridiculous agreement that we make in society. So we'll take a little break before we do the next thing. But does anyone have any questions about this or the affliction before we put it away? You're going to do your own investigation on a piece of paper before we do that. Yeah. So again, I can't tell you what would be true in that situation to do. You have to check your intuitive understanding, your innate wisdom, and go, am I self-contracting because the content of this is uncomfortable for me and I'd rather not feel discomfort? Or is there some threat? Is there some reason why you feel you shouldn't be there, you don't want to be there? Right? Is the person taking advantage of you or are they shooting arrows into you to try to hurt you? Or I don't know the context, but you will know. Once you start practicing self-honesty, it's crystal clear. I'm contracting because this is making me feel uncomfortable and I just don't want to feel these uncomfortable emotions. So you just pulled away from life and you're disconnected from your innate divinity. You're actually starving at that moment. You're in the cycle of affliction full on. Okay? There's nothing someone else can say so long as it's true for you to be there or there's no option but to be there. Sometimes the circumstance dictates that you can't leave. Then by circumstantial position, you have to stop contracting if you want to break the cycle. Okay? If it's something that's happening coming from inside your experience, there's never any excuse. It's just a choice. You either choose the cycle of affliction or you choose the cycle of awakening. It's a matter of contracting or not. With other people, it's much more nuanced. Right? But I'm guessing in that circumstance, if it was your friend, she wasn't like attacking you, or it was just difficult, right? You know, anybody lost someone they love and then try to talk with other people about it right after and watch people's response. 
or, or a breakup or something. It's people are really uncomfortable with, oh, let's just go drinking, forget about him. He wasn't good enough anyway. Translation, I'm uncomfortable with your pain. Let's make it go away. So we're, we've learned to be uncomfortable with, with emotions that don't maintain the fake, placid smile. But we all do it to one extent or another. Maintain the fake, I'm okay, I'm happy. If something detrimental just happened, you don't have to be happy and okay. And now it's the time to cry. And we can, as practitioners, cultivate ourselves so that no matter what people emote to us and toward us, we never contract. This is perhaps, in my opinion, the greatest gift you can give to anyone you're relating to, even if you meet that person for just a second, that you are willing to be there and not pull away from them. In, in Indian bhakti yoga, the, the way that this is conceived of is that that person and those emotions are the divine itself, the beloved. And your job is to be practicing devotion to those emotions. So to pull away is to break your commitment with the divine itself. It's a beautiful way of thinking about it. Right? So if you can do that, and we're going to practice it tomorrow. It's called awakening dialogue with a partner. We're going to do it this afternoon with ourself, get prepared, and then tomorrow we're going to do it with each other. And we're going to challenge each other. You're going to ask someone questions that provoke responses that probably have emotional content you know, along with them. And you're going to practice not contracting, not controlling, just really being present with that person. It's like a muscle. If you work out that muscle by doing it, you'll become unswerving in your ability to be there with people no matter what arises for them. Okay? This is what we all need from the people in our life and our social sphere. You need that from your friends. You need that from your partners. You need at least one person in your life who can do that with you. Right? Or otherwise, it's a very lonely trip. Right. So this is what I would say when I was talking about you and, and your kid. It's like this is what we call going first. Don't wait for someone else to do that for you. You become the first one, maybe the first person you know who's able to be with people no matter what they're feeling. And then it will be reciprocated. Everyone you come into contact with is asking you for that. Every person who's self-contracting in your presence, look through that person and see their, their enlightened nature. They're speaking to you from that place too. They're saying, see me, hold me. Don't be, don't be distracted by the face. Don't be distracted by the tears or the anger or whatever's coming at you. See me, see me, see me, see me. They're always calling to you. And again, the, the spiritual traditions that, that were developed on the Indian subcontinent have such beautiful iconography. One icon is that the beloved is inside of the heart of the devotee. Right? You see it in Hanuman. You see. So it's, imagine like a plate here that's clear and inside of that is literally God. So see everyone like that. There's the, there's the form. Inside of that is the divine. And it's going, can you see me? Can you see me? Can you see me? Or are you going to check out? Or are you going to go, I don't love that form. Every time you self-contract, you basically say F you to the divine. Because what's looking right at you is divinity itself, is the living life itself, is the living spirit itself. That's your teacher. That's your beloved. If you just do intimacy, if you just do relationship, that's the whole thing. If you really get that, you don't need the guidebook. 
Just do it in every sphere all the time, constantly. Never pull away. And you'll, in this lifetime, reach the highest level of enlightenment. It's not easy. Because it scares the heck out of us to be intimate. Because it means you can't hide behind your identifications. It's the only reason it's difficult. It's scary. It means you're exposed too. The Tibetans call this naked awareness. Awareness with no clothes. I love that. Naked awareness. Totally exposed. Totally there with whatever's coming at it. 